Hi, welcome back to the, to the Dialectic. I'm here with Grace Carson, and today we'll be talking about her piece, Tribal Sovereignty, Decolonization, and Abolition, Why Tribes Should Reconsider Punishment, which will be published in UCLA Law Review, spring of 2023. So Grace, please introduce your piece and yourself. Yeah. Hi. First off, I am so happy to be here. I was a senior editor on UCLA Law Review um, during my time at UCLA Law. I graduated in May 2022. Um, and so I just feel very honored to be um, brought back on and um, a part of the journal in some capacity. Um, yeah. Should I start talking about myself first or the piece first? I don't know. It's great. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, a little bit about me. Um, I'm a Skadden Fellow. Um, I work right now at Tribal Law and Policy Institute on their Wellness Court project. And my Skadden project focuses um, specifically on basically bringing together both healing to wellness courts and um, peacemaking. And so healing to wellness courts really focus on um, rehabilitation. It's like an alternative to incarceration for people who use drugs in tribal communities that really focuses on rehabilitation rather than incarceration. But that rehabilitation is really centered on um, healing in terms of or as a part of like their culture. So there's a lot of like cultural activities and community activities. And yeah, that's kind of what, you know, the basic premise of healing and wellness course are every tribe, you know, kind of implements them differently. Um, some tribes have like sanctions, some other tribes don't have sanctions, um, there's incentives. And you can head on over to Tribal Law and Policy Institute, they have a million publications on it if you want to learn more about healing and wellness courts. And Tribal Law and Policy Institute has a really great um, healing and wellness court program, and they've kind of brought me on to figure out how we can incorporate peacemaking um, into that program and into healing and wellness courts. And so peacemaking really, um, there's like, <laughs> peacemaking is really funny because there's like a million ways to describe it and a million different ways that tribes kind of implement it. But really, it is a traditional like dispute resolution um, between uh, tribes use um, that, and have used traditionally for years um, as an alternative, again, to incarceration and, and to policing and to punishment that really brings about like the healing, not just of the person who like caused harm, but also to the person who was harmed and then also to the whole community as a whole, um, because Native people um, and tribes, you know, a lot of their views of harm really is like you know, and of course, you can like look up like Robert Yazi, who does will explain this way better than I do, uh, who has explained this way better than I have. But basically, like a lot of Native people view like justice as like a circle rather than adversarial. And so and that's really like kind of the concept that I am like starting with in this article is, um, you know, a lot of the ideas of like punishment as a justice system has been on has been imposed on tribes through colonization, um, you know, by the federal government. And um, so basically a large premise and argument of this article is that tribes should take a step back from that idea of punishment being justice and look at like traditional views of the ways that we have incorporated justice in the past. Um, and my caveat really, because I have conversations with people sometimes who are like, okay, but like decolonization and, you know, indigenous features doesn't mean that like we just do everything we did in the past, right? It should be like whatever indigenous people want. And I 100% am for that. And I, I definitely think that like, you know, 
not all forms of traditional justice are going to continue to work for us. But I do think that like we can use those traditional forms of justice as a model to inform where we've been and what have worked for us before um, and reconsider what's not working for us now and what is working for us now. Um, and I think that we see, and this article argues, like we really interrogate, you know, what the adversarial, you know, Western criminal legal system does for us as people. We see that it actually causes more harm than it does help us, and than it does, you know, mediate that harm and um, create harmony and peace. And so, I just went on a really long tangent, but basically, that's the premise of my article, and that's where I'm working from. And yeah, that's kind of what this article is about. So I want to circle back to something you just said on the tail end about the argument where people, the perspective where, you know, Native people should just do what Native people want to do and tribes themselves should just do what tribes themselves want to do. And I think that really ties into like an assimilation concept, especially mm -hmm. when we're, you know, analyzing tribal court systems or tribes, tribal nations themselves. And I think your piece really touches on about how to, you know, decolonize and go back into traditional ways to basically take all these Western notions that have been imposed on us through policing and incarceration and whatnot and remove them. How how do you as a law student who has been, you know, institutionalized in a Western legal system, like think about these theories in a way that is as close as possible to, I guess, traditional norms? Because, you know, a lot of people who are institutionalized and law system law systems go back to their tribes and their judges and whatnot. And, you know, we learn a lot about how to make the legal system best way when we take, you know, some of the practice we learn in law school. How, so how do we like uh, distinguish, how do we separate those two things? Yeah, I think that's a huge question and something I really grappled with as a law student and honestly that I'm still grappling with as like a baby lawyer, right? Um, as somebody who's like just, you know, putting my feet and starting to put my foot in the water. Um, yeah, that's like a big question. I think I wouldn't have gone to law school if I didn't think that there was some merit in like learning Western systems of uh, not just like systems of justice, but, you know, other systems that we have, like the legal system in general. Like I, I wouldn't have gone to law school if I didn't think that there wasn't some, you know, purpose in learning these systems and the ways that one, we could like utilize them in our own justice systems as Native people and Native nations, but also as, you know, using that system to help protect our rights, you know. Um, but I think before coming to law school and also through law school, through learning more about those legal systems and operations, I was able to learn not just about how those systems operate, but also the limitations of those systems um, and the ways in which those systems can perpetrate harm. And so, like for me, you know, and the people who are like, you know, we can't go back. Like everything is touched by colonization. And I completely understand that. And I also think like for me as a lawyer, like I can't detach like everything I've learned in law school. And I also like, I really like try to prioritize the voices of people who are on the ground and like actually like practicing this work in their communities, because I will always to a certain extent, like be detached. And so I really try to prioritize those voices. But I'm not, I'm not, you know, asking us to go back like uncritically and not, you know, think of where we are now as um, Indigenous peoples who have been colonized. I'm just asking us to like look at these systems as they are now and look at how they're functioning now and look at, you know, if they really are meeting the needs that we say we need and meeting like what we want for our people. Um 
I, you know, and I think like returning to how we used to be as peoples and the things that worked for us is just a good way to like figure out, you know, culturally and spiritually and traditionally, like what is it that we as a community want? Has that changed? And if that has, that's fine. But like really taking a look at that. I think that's something that, and I've wrote about a little bit in the paper, um, and it really comes from Professor Stephanie Lumpson, um, who is brilliant and amazing. But she did a talk once, I can't remember exactly where the talk was, and there was the pushback that we get a lot in like tribal communities that are like, okay, like you say we want abolition and decolonization, but like when you talk to Native people, um, like really like they want more policing. Like they want more police. Like they think that tribal police are underfunded. They think that like our jails are underfunded. You know, Stephanie Lumpson and like I also say now in my talks, like um, I think that that's true. I think that a lot of Native people, particularly Native lawyers and people like in our government systems will say that they want more incarceration or at least they say that they want like better, like like um, funded justice systems, Western justice systems and policing. And I think that that's true. But when you look at what the need is behind that, what the actual need behind saying we want more policing is, what people are really saying is we want more protection for our people. We want more safety for our people. We want healing for our people. We want resources for our people that provide the care that we need. And so I think that when there's like a native person saying like, I want more policing and I want more resources. And there's other native people um, like me that are saying like, I want there to be like less policing and I want there to be abolition. Really, when you come down to look at what we're saying, it's the same thing. It's just that we want our people to be protected, happy, healthy, safe. Um, And there's just like two different ways of getting at that. And that's kind of what this article goes back to explore, you know, through looking at traditional ways of justice is what justice system actually meets the needs that we're looking for. Because if we're talking about policing incarceration and we really look at that, we see that it actually is causing more harm than it is good. At least that's what this article argues. And so this article, by looking at traditional forms of justice, like peacemaking, it's really saying like these ways, getting to the root of the issue, providing preventative care, providing housing, providing transportation might actually better protect our people than incarceration and policing. And that's worth um, exploring. Right. It's kind of addressing, you know, implicit assimilation tactics we have in tribal nations. You're kind of encouraging tribal nations to look at how have they been assimilating into Western culture and how can we remove some of these really harmful tactics um, away from the tribe. Yeah. Interesting. Interestingly, in your article, you noted how tribes, tribal nations who decolonize, adopt abolitionist principles can likely pave the way for criminal legal reform in the United States carceral system. And I think it's really interesting because, you know, just the size of tribe of tribal nations, they have a little bit more wiggle room and sovereignty to make creative decisions um, at a smaller scale. Can you speak a little bit about that, of how you think that, like, we can be the model? Yeah, I think like the first like initial idea kind of comes from, I don't know if you've ever been like in a civics class or like a U.S. history class and your professor being like states are like the experimental whatever, whatever for laws, like states make the law and then federal, you know, government can decide whether or not those laws work. And I don't know if that actually, I mean, I think that that, you know, we've seen that play out before. And so I'm kind of taking that same idea, but applying it to tribes, except I think tribes and 
In some ways, they have less sovereignty than states do, but in other ways, they have more sovereignty, right? If we actually look at the maze of like criminal jurisdiction, for example, we can kind of see the areas in which tribes can and cannot assert themselves. And so, yeah, it's coming kind of coming from that idea that tribes do have a little wiggle room to implement systems that other, you know, places in the United States might not be able to implement. And if that's um, successful for tribes, you know, that's like a place just like, you know, the federal government can look to states that have successful programs. They could look to tribes that have that successful program. And I think like that's really cool. Like, I don't know, that makes me really excited that tribes can have the opportunity to pave the way for something really great if that take if they take that initiative. I think on the flip side, my article does still talk about the limitations of criminal jurisdiction. And there is like a ton of limitations that are increasing, <laughs> that have increased this year with Castro Herta um, in terms of criminal jurisdiction. But um it also talks about how we can implement like abolitionist um, reforms and systems that are outside of the criminal legal system as well. And I think that even though those are kind of outside of the criminal legal system, I still think that that's like an example that other programs can look to in the United States. I also think it's really important to note, like when we talk about restorative justice, which, you know, is like a part of what abolition is, right? like getting rid of the of prisons and policing uh, means incorporating instead like restorative and transformative justice. I always make it a point to note like restorative justice came from indigenous peoples. You can't have restorative justice without prioritizing tribal sovereignty and without prioritizing like indigenous epistemologies and ontologies, because that's where restorative justice came from. And so I think it's almost necessary to have tribal nations and to have indigenous communities at the forefront of creating restorative justice systems, because that initial thought of what restorative justice is came from our peoples in the first place. I definitely agree. And I, I think if uh, folks take a closer look into especially the California tribal courts, they are the leaders and they're, they're, they are doing restorative justice practices as we speak. For sure. Yeah. Can you talk about, I mean, we're talking about sovereignty a lot. What What is sovereignty? And I know you distinguish it from self-determination. So can you explain those two concepts and how they're playing into all of the arguments that we're uh, going through? Yeah, you know, and I, I distinguish the two, you know, the two definitions, I think mostly within a footnote, mostly because I don't want to take away from the point of the article. But the way that I view tribal sovereignty versus self-determination and many, um, scholars specifically within indigenous studies view the distinction is tribal sovereignty is like strictly a legal framework that is rooted within like u.s law and so specifically like the definition that i use for tribal sovereignty is the legal right for tribes to govern themselves including the right to establish their own form of government determine membership requirements enact legislation and establish court systems whereas many indigenous scholars um, and indigenous studies view self-determination as a framework outside of and separate from U.S. law and legal systems. And so it's the state of political independence that existed prior to colonization. And that's, I, I, I do make that distinguishment within the footnote because I think it's important um, in terms of like scholarship. I do think, and though, and I actually, I do think it's like some scholars might disagree with me, but I do think tribal sovereignty is a way to get to self-determination. And so I don't want to downplay tribal sovereignty at all. And that is why I ended up using it uh, in my paper as uh, the definition. Plus it's a legal term, it's a legal paper, right? <laughs> and so, yeah, and I kind of put my opinion, I think in the footnote that I, I view self-determination as the eventual end goal for tribes. You know, I think that self-determination is essential to decolonization. But again, I view tribal sovereignty as a way of getting there. 
Right, right. Because, well, you know, historically, it has been kind of the only way we we have right now. But exactly. Yeah. And that's like the thing is like working in the world as it is working versus working in the world as it should be. You know, I think, you know, and this is kind of maybe even a little annoying part of like me being a lawyer and me being like working within legal systems is I very much like, and I actually, you know, I think most lawyers actually don't see me this way. They think me more of impractical, but I feel I know a lot of my friends like in the movement who are doing movement work, you know, who are doing abolitionist work, view me as annoying because they're like, okay, you're so inside the box, right? And so it's funny, you know, like to be in that middle space. But um, yeah, I, I very much view, think that we have to work in the world as it is uh, in order to get to the world that we want um, it to look like. And so for me, I think to a certain extent, working within these systems and um, establishing ourselves within these systems is a way to get where we want to go. Right. Let's talk about um, some of the problems that uh, policing and incarceration of indigenous peoples has on tribal nations and indigenous people in general. Yeah. I know you cite uh, Michelle Alexander, which great, great author, um, especially, you know, how she talks about slavery has been reimagined um, in our carceral system. So can you kind of talk about all of that through like an indigenous perspective? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because for Native women, they're actually one of the most overrepresented. Actually, I think they are right now the most overrepresented group of, you know, racial women in prisons right now. But we hear so little about it, which is concerning. But yes, like Native people are like specifically and in a unique way targeted by, you know, state incarceration in a way that is different, you know, of course, than, you know, non-racialized people, so like white people, um, but in a way that I think is unique to like to Native people. I think like some of the statistics I put in there is like Native men are admitted to prison at the rate, like four times the rate of white men and Native women are admitted to prison at the uh, six times the rate of of white women. And yeah, so, you know, we see like the distinct and over incarceration of native peoples. And I, uh, we also see like native people are killed more than any other race um, by law enforcement. We also see the way that specifically native communities have, uh, and, you know, tribes have been forced to adopt these systems themselves of policing and incarceration. Uh, my article goes into detail specifically about how those systems back, you know, like, you know, within the past century plus, you know, have been like tribes have been enforced to adopt those systems in order literally by force or like in order to get like funding or whatever. And that's still happening today, you know, with, um, you know, with VAWA, like Violence Against Women Act, the World Reauthorization, you know, like tribes have to agree to certain circumstances in order to get like this funding and in order to get like increased criminal jurisdiction. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of talk about that and like that unique uh, impact it has on Native people's um, in a way that I think, you know, is really obviously harmful. <laughs> um, and then again, like from Stephanie Lumpson, like what she says is that, you know, when Native people are removed from their land, they are unable to tend to it or perform ceremony, which directly affects the strength of their relationship to their land and tribe's ability to practice sovereignty. And so I think like that unique you know, impact it has on Native people is like, not only is it affecting, you know, Native people as a community, because 
it's like harming native people, like taking them out of their families, but it's also harming like tribal sovereignty and tribes ability to govern themselves and take care of themselves. Because when you're taking people from a community, you are more limiting their ability to continue to do their cultural practices, limiting their ability to govern themselves. And so I think that like, is just really unique and um, important in terms of how policing and incarceration affects native people. Can you break down what kind of criminal jurisdictions tribes actually have? As Lord have mercy. With- <laughs> In a podcast? Okay, I can kind of. Helpful. I think it would be helpful for listeners to know that, you know, uh, certain crimes has state or federal um, yeah. intervention. And there's certain things that tribal nations, that crimes that where they retain criminal jurisdiction they ha- what they can actually do with those crimes that they have jurisdiction over versus state or federal. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how to do it like in a succinct way. Should I bring out the chart on this tribal legal studies? So basically tribes, it, so criminal jurisdiction is often explained <laughs> our, as tribal criminal, criminal jurisdiction is often explained as like this complicated maze. And that's because it, it literally is. It's literally a maze. Like native scholars have to return to like this chart right in order to see like who has criminal jurisdiction over a native person who causes harm like unlike most places it's about like political slash racial i mean that's a whole that's a whole can of worms but it's basically about whether or not you're a native person or a non-native person whether or not like what land you're on so tribal land versus non-tribal land and also it's about like what tribe i'm sorry what tribe what crime you know has been committed and so um major crimes act basically listed out these certain crimes um such as like manslaughter i don't even know what's all in there (laughs) but basically these major you know violent crimes um, and any of those crimes are going to be under federal jurisdiction. So the federal um, courts and the federal government is going to prosecute those crimes, not tribes. And then in public law, 280 states, the state. Yeah. And then in public, and that's a whole other thing, right? In public law, 280 states have that jurisdiction, not the federal courts. And in some places, you know, and are in some um, scenarios, both tribes and the federal courts like have jurisdiction. And so it's really caused like a bunch of confusion about like who gets to do what and who gets to prosecute who and like when can they prosecute who. And so that is like a really, it's a really complicated thing that I've laid out like in the comment about how it actually operates. But that in and of itself, like that complicated criminal jurisdiction is what makes as as a part of what makes like harm that happens on reservations like makes it so rampant right so when we're talking about missing and murdered indigenous women a part of the reason why that's able to ha- happen in the first place is because tribes have limited if any jurisdiction to prosecute people who have caused harm on their reservation right and my argument to that isn't necessarily like, because um, I think a lot of people are like, oh my God, give tribes more prosecutor- prosecutory, um, you know, powers. And I, I'm not necessarily against that because I do like tribes should have the ability to do whatever they want. But what I'm saying is until that happens, well, one, we should interrogate that, whether or not that actually, you know, limits harm, prosecuting people limits harm. That's a whole other can of worms. But two, 
while we're waiting, you know, for tribes to have sovereignty, like we can provide care and prevent harm now, right? We can figure out ways to do that outside of the criminal legal system um, that maybe isn't focused on prosecuting and punishment because we're unable to do that, but is instead on like preventing harm from happening and taking care of people who have, you know, exemplified, you know, violent patterns and helping like making those patterns stop. And so that's kind of where, I talk about, you know, I'm definitely for increasing criminal jurisdiction for tribes because that is increasing tribal sovereignty and increasing our ability to create and imagine systems that are different than like Western systems of justice. But my argument is until then, we can create systems outside of, you know, the uh, criminal legal system that will actually address harm and protect people and keep them safe. What are some alternate systems that address harm? examples? Yeah. And so I think that every tribe is going to be different because every tribe is going to have their different, you know, cultural values, spiritual values. Um, I think peacemaking is kind of the overlaying like term that we use when we talk about alternatives to incarceration and alternatives to punishment. And that is like one of the central pieces of peacemaking is like, it's not one size fit all. It's um, really dependent on tribes, like cultural values. Also, peacemaking isn't supposed to be like, let's say like Navajo peacemaking, like they have their own peacemaking court and their peacemaking program. It's not supposed to be a program that's just like everybody can take that. Like it's supposed to be like tribes own way of doing it and tribes who may have less of their culture intact, like first contact tribes on the East coast, like they're also able to take what other tribes use. And that's what I'm talking about too, is like, it doesn't always have to be returning to how things were at your tribe. It can also be like what's working for other tribes based on your current values. Um, So they're able to like take those systems that work for them as well. Um, So peacemaking basically is a good way to explain like any alternative to incarcerating and punishment. And that, again, looks different for everybody. But um, a lot of it is conflict resolution, like everyone in the circle, uh, everyone in the community who's been harmed, um, elders coming in and, you know, having like that talking process. Um, And also it involves like preventative care. So like housing people who need housing or um, you know, somebody who's been harmed, making sure that they're getting the health care that they need and stuff like that. And so it's really like this wide open thing, which I think makes people concerned because they're like, okay, like there's no structure to that. Right. Uh, and it, it is it's something that is like really hard work because it really takes into consideration like what everyone has gone through and it's messy. Like humans are messy. Right. But it's work that I think and other scholars who do this work think is really valuable and actually does make the change that we want to see um, in our communities. Yeah. I think one of the big things that it seems like you're saying is that, you know, tribes are community based, mm-hmm. whereas the United States is self-based. And sure. I think a lot of the reasons why your um arguments work and your not necessarily theory works but like what you're pushing for actually works and would make a difference is because you can be community community based in your sovereignty and like enacting mm-hmm. a criminal or civil jurisdiction because there's civil fines that sure. trial courts do waive mm-hmm. or have like alter- alternative uh ways of paying or or whatnot Absolutely. I think like at the heart of this is really the idea, and I talk less about it in this article, but I talk more about it in articles that are forthcoming, is this idea that like 
the Western epistemology behind the criminal legal system, which is like rooted in punishment, when you look at it, is like really like opposite of like indigenous epistemologies of like being and resolving harm and being in community. Like those are really at odds at one another. And so when you're in a community that's, yeah, that's very community-based and very like, it's just different. Like their ideas of justice are different. Their ideas of being are different. It makes sense that those systems aren't really working for our people, which I mean, granted, there's of course, from abolitionist perspective, huge discussions about those that Western system not working for anybody at all. But particularly for tribes, I think, you know, like it makes sense that it's not working for those people and that um, many tribes are working on ways that do work for their people and are in line with their cultural values. Right. I think another interesting thing is that tribes in themselves you know they when a tribal member is incarcerated especially in a united states system of incarceration they come back to the community mm -hmm. and so the community as a whole has a lot of healing to do just because of you know the historic you know you talk you did talk about boarding schools you talked about yeah. them being incarcerated at a higher rate um so there's a lot of healing that tribes have to do and i think that's one of the tenets of your scholarship. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of expand on one of the points you make in the paper where like it's partial quote, uh, preservation of culture and values define liberation? Like what does that mean? What does that look like? Because I, I find that really profound and and to to you know, especially as two indigenous people talking, we we can see this more in a big picture way. But can you kind of elaborate on those points? Yeah, I guess like, you know, kind of to your point of like trauma and the ways that like, you know, boarding schools, and I talk about that in my article, like boarding schools are a form of incarceration as like colonization in and of itself has been like a form of policing and um and incarceration. Yeah, I just like think that like liberation is really going to come from like a restoration of our cultural values and our cultural being like that is for so many native people like when we talk about like language restoration and cultural restoration like that for us is liberation that is indigenous living you know surviving genocide like that those two things can't be untied and so i just i think about the ways that indigenous people you know have endured so much trauma and how so much of us overcoming that trauma is through cultural revitalization like revitalization um actually in fact like a lot of wellness programs you know that focus focus again on people who use drugs like a lot of them have cultural programs that like help them find like value in like in again in language and in practicing ceremony and in um even like tiny cultural things like beading and like making moccasins and we find that participants like really find value and um I guess like purpose and and doing things like that and I think that that's true for the community as a whole like when we're returning to our cultural values and a lot of our cultural values is not punishment a lot of our cultural values tends to be you know healing and restoration when we return to those things like that is for us you know decolonizing and that is for us liberation from the effects of colonization and so I think those two things are just like very um innate and a huge part of unpacking like the generational uh trauma that indigenous people have suffered is to undo those same systems that have contributed to our harm time and time again do you think that implementing some of these restorative justice um, practices is there a place 
for state cooperation when we're going towards self-determination. Like, where does the United States fit into all of this in terms of tribes moving towards self-determination for criminal justice in general? I think the best thing that the United States can do is just, like, let tribes do what they know works best for them. And so, you know, what that means is, yeah, increased criminal jurisdiction, increased ability to decide, like, what systems work for them what systems don't work for them, and how to handle harm that happens on their reservation uh, and in their communities. Um, I think that that also means like providing the resources they need, you know, for to, to help get these systems off the ground. But I think really, you know, at the end of the day, it's taking a step back and just letting tribes actually have the power and ability to do what they need to do to help the people in their community. Because at the end of the day, it's Native people who best know how to help and serve Native people. And I think that Um, If the United States allowed tribal nations to actually like fully govern themselves in the way that they are like capable of doing, I think that we'd see a lot of the problems that we see on reservations, such as like drug addiction and alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera, crime, quote unquote. I think that we'd see a lot of those things, you know, start to heal itself because tribes in our communities best know how to help our communities. Right. Is there any um, practical examples you can point to? Because I, what comes to mind is like something simple tribes can do now, right? Code revisal. Revise your constitution, right? Which is largely based on United States systems. So like what other examples can tribes do now? Yeah. So I think like for tribes, I, I think that there is actually a lot of support out there specifically for healing the wellness courts and for peacemaking. I think especially for healing and wellness courts, there's a ton of both funding um, and support, technical support, but also for peacemaking, there's beginning to be more like funding and technical support as well uh, in terms of if you want to incorporate those systems in your community. Again, I work at Tribal Law and Policies uh, Institute who actually does this. And so they're a good resource to turn to. Um, but yeah, just starting to look at the resources that are already available, like I'm not asking tribes to like start from scratch and be like, all right, we got to cut all this out and we got to like figure it out. Like there's already resources and programs, um, both for peacemaking and healing and wellness courts that already have so much publication, so much resources, so much like technical support that can help tribes at least begin to implement these systems that um, seek to be alternatives to incarceration. Um, They may not be perfect systems. I actually personally have like my own critiques of the way that healing to wellness courts operate. Um, I, yeah, there's, yeah, I I have critiques and thoughts that will, I will one day speak about, but um, they're not perfect systems, but I think that they're better than any system that does not at least try to limit the harm that happens through incarceration and policing. And so I think that those are really good spots. And yeah, a lot of tribes are starting to incorporate in their tribal code, um, you know, provisions that implement healing to wellness courts and peacemaking. And I think those are really great ways to start. How do you feel about, um, I know there's, especially in California, there's some uh, some tribal nations that have implemented wellness programs or like rehabilitative programs, which is just like a broad concept in itself. What is rehabilitation? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about opening that up to like when they get well established, opening that up to non-Indians? So I would say like wellness courts are kind of already a form of drug courts, which happen um, outside of Native communities. Actually, I think 
I might be misspeaking, so you might want to fact check this. I think drug courts actually came before wellness courts, and wellness courts were uh, an indigenized version of drug courts. We do find, you know, that like wellness courts actually are a little bit more impactful, I think, in part because they are different from drug courts and that they are very like culturally focused and and again, that's like very community focused and community based. So yeah, I mean, obviously, like I'm for it in a way that works for, you know, communities outside of tribal, you know, outside of tribal nations. I just think, I think as long as you're like prioritizing the voices of the people who created that. But yeah, it's kind of like my my whole like thesis of like, you know, these are good models for places outside of the, uh, outside of tribal nations to adopt. And I you know, being an abolitionist myself, like I very much wish to see, you know, restorative justice be like the central system in which we operate from. So anytime that happens, I am, I'm a happy, happy person. <laughs> can you, I know we're, we're talking a whole bunch about abolitionists and can you explain what that means and how is that different from decolonization, decolonization theory? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different definitions for abolitionism. Uh, in terms of like the prison industrial complex. But for me, I think really the root of it is the idea that instead of punishment, which we see that in the form of incarceration and policing, we could instead create what, you know, Ruth Gilmore calls, calls like life affirming institutions. But we can instead create these institutions that care for people. And that by implementing these institutions and systems and practices that provide care for people rather than punishment, that will limit a lot of the harm that takes, if not all of the harm that takes place in our society. And so, yeah, that, that looks like abolishing prisons and jails and policing. And people get really scared by that. But abolition isn't just about like the absence of those things. It's about the incorporation of other systems that will, you know, help people. So yeah, like housing, oh, there's a lot of over incarceration of people who are unhoused. But if we had those people in houses and had those, gave those people like mental health resources and food, like that would, you know, a limit a lot of the crime, quote unquote crime, such as, you know, like theft or um, loitering or, you know, whatever. And so like, basically there's a lot of solutions to this harm that is happening um, that could be done outside of the system. Decolonization is the idea of, it's both, it's not less, it's like prioritizing indigenous peoples and indigenous thoughts. It doesn't necessarily mean like returning to traditional systems like i don't want to put it like as a thing of the past because it's also about recreating like futures and moving forward through indigenous futures and i and prioritizing like indigenous form of government um and indigenous people making choices on their own land and i've listed out in my article the argument that like abolition and decolonization can't be separated from one another so abolition can't happen without decolonization and vice versa and i really like i think that that is important like when i'm talking about abolition theory and decolonization theory and trying to piece the two together just trying to make that point that like you have to be investing in both if you want one essentially so yeah Right. And I think that's really interesting to note because especially as law students, and I guess now you're a, a full full lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of and lawyers. <laughs> I think it, it's just it's a hard thing. I think in theory it makes a lot of sense, but it's right. hard in practice just because of all the limitations that the United States has put on tribes. Yeah. But I think and I try to make this point in this argument is like 
again, even just adopting a wellness court in your tribe is a practice of abolitionism, right? I think like people view abolitionists and abolitionism as this big thing. Like we have to like abolish all prisons tomorrow. And like, we're going to live in this utopian society. But I, I don't think that that's true. I think like an abolitionist sorry, an abolitionist reform, an abolitionist practice is anything that even tries to limit, you know, incarceration. I mean, this can be anything from like, I don't know, like, like limiting sentencing rates, you know, like that is an abolitionist practice. And so like, we don't have to start, we don't have to abolish all prisons tomorrow, but we can take these little steps to help further the world. Again, it's working in the world as it is, right? And like furthering it, furthering and doing the work that we want to do to get to the world that we want to live in. Right. And which circles back to your whole point is that this is, you know, implementing small changes, implementing these principles moves us towards sovereignty and then self-determination. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's like my point of like abolitionism and decolonization is essential. Like, to have decolonization, we need self-determination, right? To have self-determination, we need tribal sovereignty. Again, some people might argue that, whatever. <laughs> and to have tribal sovereignty, we need people in our community. What does incarceration do? It literally takes people out of our like, community, right? And so we need to have systems that keep people in our community in order to continue to have like healthy functioning tribal sovereignty. And that really is like the crux of my arguments. At least I, I tried to make it so. <laughs> you know. You definitely made it. What can you say? Like, what are your goals uh, looking towards the future? Not necessarily for, you know, these just like, what would you like to say tribes implement tribal nations to implement or just to be like open a discussion about? Yeah, I th- and I think that that is what I want. <laughs> I think and I know it sounds so small, but I want tribes to start to have these open discussions about what we want, you know, and oftentimes it's safety protection, you know, whatever. And how to best get there in a way that causes the least amount of harm. I was at this conference recently and I was explaining, um, basically doing a talk on my paper. It was on like self-determination, but, you know, I ended up talking about abolitionism and, and they were like, well, like, again, they have brought up that question, like what do like tribes will be against this? Like tribes have said again and again, they want more incarceration. And I said, like, you know, how I said peacemaking is really hard because people are really difficult and like talking together is like kind of like really complicated and hard and messy, you know, like that's the same thing for like these conversations about abolition and these conversations about like harm reduction and, and keeping our community safe and the best way to do that. But the place to start is by having these discussions and having these open conversations and allowing room for different perspectives, you know, to enter the conversation. And it's going to be messy and it's going to be hard and there's going to be like a lot of different opinions, but we need to actually look at these systems and look at the way that they are and aren't serving our people um, instead of just like adopting and assimilating like to these policies and to these systems without like critical thought against them, you know? And maybe it is like, maybe we do have these conversations and like we do, I mean, I, I, I don't think so, but like maybe we do see at least some of these like principles that are working for us. That's great. But I really want us to at least start to have the conversation in which we're critically analyzing these systems rather than just like adopting them because 
in the sake of travel name of like travel sovereignty like no we need to drop these sovereign like these um sorry these systems because the federal government is going to like respect us more or the federal government is going to allow us more power but instead figuring out like well maybe actually by us adopting these systems we're actually limiting tribal sovereignty and you know beginning to have those discussions and so that's the next step that i want really for us is just to have like open conversation about what is and what isn't serving us as native peoples and native communities to that point, what do you say about the argument people will likely try to make of um, this can limit sovereignty because maybe the United States wants to enact more power or Congress wants to enact more power if tribes try to use their criminal jurisdiction that they have or criminal jurisdiction power that they already innately have now? Yeah, I mean, I think like my argument to that is, okay, <laughs> sorry, that sounded, uh, I don't know, out. <laughs> that sounded very harsh. My argument to that is I understand that concern and I understand, you know, I, I even think that maybe that's like a likelihood, but tribes now as we are in adopting these policies without like, you know, going against them and without questioning them, we are still getting our criminal jurisdiction attacked and limited. We saw that this year in the Supreme Court with Casto Herta, right? Like it's still happening regardless of whether or not we are actually trying to return to traditional values, whether or not we're trying to push back. So for me, it's like, we might as well push back um, and, and you know try to make some noise if they're gonna be, if the federal government is gonna be attacking our sovereignty anyways. Plus again, when we really look at these systems, like they are inherently like in limiting our sovereignty again like i in my paper like i discussed the way incarceration and policing inherently as an institution limits our ability to practice tribal sovereignty and so like by adopting those principles even though it seems like we're having more power you know when we really interrogate that we actually look at the way that it's limiting our power and so yeah yeah like arguments kind of twofold it's like okay that's already happening now when we're just like adopting them anyways and there's being harm being caused by adopting these um systems right and that's that's i think that's so important to know and and, and to think about especially when you know i mean look at breaking right now it's not about it but it's about land and you talk yeah. about a lot especially that even these principles and these arguments that you're making about the incarceral system is also about land back movement and it intersects with that. Can you like speak to that whole concept? Yeah, I, I think for me, like decolonization is, you know, land back. And for me, and I, I discuss this, like land back isn't just about physically getting land back. Of course, it, that is a large part of it. Absolutely. But it's also about having governance of that land back, which means having increased jurisdiction and ability to like, you know, actually decide the systems and policies that impact us as, as communities. It's also, you know, and I write, I think it's Nick Estes that says this, but it's about relations back. It's about having our kinship back and having our community systems back. Um, and so, for me, like land back is inherent to decolonization. And again, decolonization is inherent to abolition. And so it all, you know, intersects with one another. Also, can you talk a little bit about the intersection between, you know, moving towards self-determination, especially thinking about those principles and implementing it into tribal uh, incarceral systems or criminal justice. These principles also can be used in education, tribal governance, uh, other like programs or not programs, other institutions that have, we do need to decolonize that all intersect with, I mean, yeah. criminal justice is just a huge one, but it, it plays such a big role in, in society. Sure. 
Yeah, I think like, and again, like I, I think this especially ties into like preventative, the preventative part of both of like abolition, but like of anything is like, we're going to need like housing, which isn't necessarily like a criminal, like legal system functions, like more of a social service function, but like those systems are going to be really need to be built up. Same for education. You know, we're going to need like education that prioritizes like decolonization and cultural cultural revitalization. And that's going to be an essential part of, um, you know, keeping people educated on the values that matter to us as indigenous peoples is an essential part of keeping people out of prisons. And so it's all super connected. And, you know, I really I think that's why I fell into like being passionate about criminal legal reform slash abolition is because I view it as like and I think this is probably true for any subject, I guess, but like it really does, like it's impactful of every part of society. And yeah, and I just think it's so, I don't know, it's so important. And and all those pieces are going to need to work together in terms of like decolonization, which again is why I think decolonization is such an important part of abolition. Because if we're talking about, you know, people's ability to be sovereign and people's ability to like have self-determination of themselves, of course, like, you know, an abolitionist aspire to that you know they aspire for people to have like say over their body and over their like you know their communities of course decolonization which is like tribal sovereignty is going to be a huge part of that and so yeah it's all connected it's all like super hard work and it's big and it's complex and it's messy and i am not like downplaying that at all um but it all starts somewhere and for me you know with this article like i'm not telling tribes what to do I'm a little concerned that that's how it's going to be taken. It's going to be like this girl who has never lived on a reservation. You know, is telling tribes exactly what to do. I'm not saying that. I'm all I'm saying, all I'm asking tribes to do is to look at these systems and ask whether or not they're actually serving us. And if they're not, like maybe looking back at what did serve us, you know, prior to colonization and what will serve us now after we've been affected by colonization. Um, really, that's all this paper is. And I'm not even saying I have the right answers. I just graduated law school. I don't know what I'm doing. I wrote this in law school. But all I'm asking is for that initial discussion and questioning to take place. Not only tribes, but also, I mean, you know, as Indigenous law students and now somebody who's just graduated, uh, I think it's it's definitely interesting to think about these principles, especially for folks who go into law school who want to go back to their communities and hmm. give back to their communities. How is that like, has that been a driving force of studying these topics or even writing this paper? Absolutely. Like I, I mean, it, I think for native people and I don't think that people who aren't native get it. I think maybe like communities of color in general get it, but like every thing I have ever done in my entire life has been for my family and for like my community. Right. And so for me going to law school, like the sole reason of me going to law school was so that I could bring things back to my community to help better things. And so, you know, I write, I wrote this paper with so much love for like my communities and for other indigenous communities um, because I want our people to be safe. I want our people to be protected from harm. And, you know, I've, I've said this before, like openly and, you know, it's a little personal, but really like what has led me to be an abolitionist is 
both being systems impacted, like having family members like in the system of incarceration and seeing how that has like harmed not only the person who was incarcerated or the people who have been incarcerated in my family, but also harmed my family as a whole, right? Has taken me outside of my family, has and outside of my tribe, has has worked as a way, you know, to to yeah, to to again to to harm tribal sovereignty and like harm like my connection with my tribes and with my family who's indigenous. Like I've seen that happen in real life. But on the flip side of that, and and this is the part that I think a lot of people who question abolitionists miss. Like I, like many Native women and and also like queer people, and um, have been you know impacted by like childhood you know sexual abuse. And whenever that happened to me. Uh, um, and my family like reached out for protection and resources um, through the criminal legal system because that's the avenue that we had. Um, my mom, who is an Afro-Indigenous woman, so she's Black and Native, we weren't given the resources we needed in order to not only just protect me and to keep me safe um, or get quote-unquote justice, but even, you know, just like we weren't given anything that the criminal legal system said that it was supposed to give us. But not only that, but like child protective services was called on my mom because uh, I'm white passing, my siblings are white passing. And my mom is like a brown black woman, you know, and so um, and indigenous. And like we see that with ICWA, you know, now like the reason why ICWA is in place is because so, that was happening so much to indigenous women, um, particularly as a single mom, low income mom. And so anyways, all of that is to say, like, I've seen the way that the criminal legal system has both harmed people who, you know, either have caused harm or use drugs or whatever. But I've also been on the flip side of that where I have been harmed and looked for some sort of protection and safety, let alone justice, and not have received that. And so for me, like, this is coming from such a place of, like, care of wanting people who have either experienced what I have experienced or experienced some other form of harm for, you know, missing and murdered Indigenous women and queer people. It is coming from such a love and like want for those people and the people I care about to be safe and understanding that the systems that we have now don't provide that safety and wanting and imagining and hoping for a system that actually does provide that. And so really like that's what this paper comes from is that place of like love. And um, I hope that that's conveyed. <laughs> It definitely is. I think, I mean, intentionally you, you use we and I, you embed yourself into oh, yeah. intentionally to show that you're part of this community. And For I sure. think what you said was so important. And especially when you're, when people are thinking about the carceral system, it's not victim centered at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Victims, it, they don't really have a say in, in, in a lot of studies have shown, I can cite some, um, I don't have them with me right now, but that it actually creates more harms for victims and it, it doesn't yeah. help with healing. And so, you know, you're somebody who's experienced that firsthand. And so I think, you know, it's important to reimagine re systems that not only help people who are causing harm, but people who are harmed, because that's how you're going to fix the problem because what yeah. not working. Exactly. Yeah. I just hope that's conveyed. Also to the we and I statement, like... <laughs> I love UCLA Law Review because at first they were like, why are you saying we and I so much? Like, don't you know this is a scholarly paper? And I had to like take a second and be like, look, this is the reason. Like I'm coming from a very personal space. And they were like so loving and understanding towards that. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. But yes, like the we and the eyes were so intentional. Uh, every time I said it, it was like very intentionally put. It was also a pushback to like elitist scholarship. Um, you know me, you know that I am a rebel at heart. I always will be. Um, so yeah, I'm well, glad. You're decolonizing 
scholarship. I am. I literally have a tattoo that says decolonial baddie. I have to stand with that always. So yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I think this, uh, you all dialectic listeners need to listen to, um, or not need to listen to, listen to this podcast, but also read (laughs) Grace's paper um, article that will be out in spring of 2023. It's, I mean, we kind of did jumped all over between the topics, but she really goes in depth about these issues. And I think it's important for really anybody to understand how, like, just how complicated um, tribal and Indian law is and how it intersects with the larger society. Mm -hmm. Any last words you can give us? Yeah, my last word I always give at, like, presentations and whatnot is, like, we as Native people and Native communities don't have to wait for recognized sovereignty to provide care and safety for our people. And so I would love if we just started to dive right in and um, started practicing that now. So that's my that's my final word. <laughs> Thank you.